Glory be to God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in today's sermon, I want to take us into Paul in 2 Corinthians, who gives us, I think, an image or a, a state of mind for this kind of slow immersion from the pandemic. You know, how will we regain community and come back to church? But I actually want to take a journey there, because where Paul ends, a Genesis begins. It's a, one of these rare occasions when we get four readings that take us on this full journey of the four kind of narrative marks of Scripture. Creation, second, fall, third, redemption, and fourth, a new creation. And our readings just take us on that journey, so it will lead us into Paul when he starts talking about the ramifications, the impact of a new creation. Uh, the readings, if you're following them along, Genesis 3, 8 to 15, Psalm 130, um, 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 5, 5, but it's really all of chapters 3 to 7 is Paul's um, explanation. And then finally, Mark chapter 3, 20 to 35. So we go back to this first kind of narrative moment, creation. And we don't get it. We just get the echo of it in Genesis 3 today. Adam and Eve have taken the fruit from the last reading, and they have noticed that they are naked and they are ashamed and they hide themselves. And so here we meet the Lord in the garden who comes and seeks them. And in the first time he speaks to the man and the woman, he asks the question, where are you? And so we don't get so much the creation as the dissembling and the falling apart of creation. What was just a chapter ago, a few verses ago, harmonious, man and woman in the garden, um, enjoying the fruits of the trees, is now filled with shame and division and sin. And the initial move is really important. It's the temptation was to reject God and his ordering of the world. I mean, that's the core human issue of rebellion. Not just a lack of faith, but a lack of orienting ourselves and obeying the order that God has proclaimed that is good for his world. And so now Adam and Eve hiding in shame. Um, they have tension with one another. There is thorns and thistles, and the woman is set at enmity with the serpent. So there's hostility between people, there's hostility with the creation, and there's the distance of God. This sin has made this couple dangerous. And so the, the exit, the being banished from the garden, is a protective measure for God. So they can no longer take of the fruit of the tree, God says, of life. And they are unworthy of that tree in some way. And so God protects the garden by calling them out. But immediately, um, we get this sense of the fallenness of the world. And Psalm 130 is a perfect match for this passage. It, the psalm that begins, um, Out of the depths I cry. Lord, um, may your ears be attentive to my cries for mercy. The depths there is um, a water metaphor. And it's a great parallel. If you take the sin of Adam and Eve, you take the sin of humanity, and you play it out for centuries and years and families and nations, it becomes absolute disarray and turmoil. And the cry is from the depths. This water metaphor is meant to give us the sense of a tidal wave, not simply of sin, but of its consequences that just wash over us. Violence, hatred, 
oppression, division, um, immorality, theft, greed. You know, the, the undoing of a good world only gets worse. And Psalm 130 is one of these penitential psalms where the psalmist cries out when, when there's nothing else to hope for. The drowning sense of sin in the world. And so the psalmist prays in that moment of the failures of humanity for God to listen. And already in this psalm, you get this sense now of redemption. So creation, the consequences of the fall. But the psalm begins its move into the moment of redemption, the third kind of narrative turn at the bottom of the ark. He says, but if you should watch or if you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The psalmist knows that God is not vindictive, that he punishes, he disciplines as a father disciplines his children. But he's overflowing with generosity and a desire to redeem. Even in Genesis, as the reading we cut off today, at the end of that passage, God sews skins of leather for Adam and Eve to protect them. In the garden, there's already a redemptive moment at work. God, um, angry, God um, having been rebelled against, is already calculating how to restore the brokenness of the world. And so this moment of redemption begins. That psalm ends by the psalmist saying, with you there is plenteous redemption, and you will redeem Israel from our sins. The psalmist knows that in the darkness, and the depths, and the being washed over by sin, God delights in bringing humanity out of it. He won't be content to leave us in a state of sin and division and oppression and violence. He longs to redeem. This moves us to this uh, third passage for us, Mark's Gospel today, which is the centerpiece of redemption. What will it require to win back, to restore that lost world of Eden, of the harmony in the garden? What will require the Son of God, God himself in human flesh, to unite himself to that earth and dust and flesh and to make it back into fellowship, to bring it back into fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And that's what Mark is in the middle of doing in his gospel today. Now I want to unpack his scene because it's got some complicated parts that people may be wondering about. But if you go back to Mark's gospel, I want it to be clear for us that this idea of redemption of creation is in Mark's mind. Jesus begins his ministry with the Holy Spirit and Jesus over the waters. And it proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, the Spirit descends on Jesus. That is Genesis imagery. And from that creative moment, it's Mark's way, Matthew does the same thing. That creative moment of Jesus' baptism, we get the sense that something new has begun. Jesus goes from this scene in um, the anointing in the river. Immediately, it says, Mark's favorite term, immediately he goes into the desert to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by the serpent, by the devil, right? The figure in Genesis 3 who began the undoing and unraveling of society, of humanity, of creation. There Jesus meets him and defeats him. 
See, Mark is on this journey. Mark adds this element that's not in the other Gospels. He says Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals for 40 days and 40 nights. There is a a Noahic, a picture of Noah and the animals, the creative world. Jesus at this wilderness scene. He's gone to the depths of Genesis and begun to remake and restart the story of humanity. That's what Mark wants us to see. And he begins to go from there and teach and heal and restore. He takes a paralyzed people and lepers and the sick, and he begins to make them new. He begins to undo the curse. And so crowds and people and everyone begins to draw attention or, or um, to, to notice the works of this Lord. And this brings us to the passage we have today in Mark chapter 3. And it's a clever little passage because it gives us three audiences. And that, I think, is Mark's way of appealing to us with the question, who do you say he is? So Jesus in the scene, at the beginning, he's come back to his hometown, to his family. And it says in this peculiar way that the family is seeking out Jesus. They've come out to meet him because they say he is out of his mind. Jesus has gone crazy. This is the family's assessment. So not an easy journey for Jesus. At the same time, um, there's the crowds themselves. They press in and the family can't get near Jesus. See, these are these people who grasp the significance of the moment and they cling and they flock to the one who's redeeming and healing. And the third group are the scribes who've come down from Jerusalem to examine Jesus. And they say of him, He has Beelzebul in him. They're trying to give an account for the mighty works that Jesus has done. And so Mark, as I said, has given us these three different audiences. And the question is, which one do you belong to? Now, in the middle of this scene is this peculiar passage that uh, stifles many people or troubles us. Jesus says this, um, of those who've accused him of working those works by demonic power or by Beelzebul. He says, anyone who sins against the Son of Man, his sin will be forgiven him. But anyone who sins against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now this creates for all kinds of people anxiety that maybe they've committed that sin and can't ever be back in fellowship with Jesus. And odds are uh, very high that you haven't committed that. What Jesus is doing is actually kind of um, a specific way of doing Jewish legal thought. So it's a custom in Jewish legal thought to state a rule, then to state its exceptions. So the rule is, if you sin against the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But there's an exception if you sin against the Spirit. And if you stay in the context, it's very clear what Jesus is doing there. These Sadducees, or these scribes, have accused Jesus of doing works by a demonic spirit. But in fact, His ability to do this work is the creative work of the Holy Spirit. So to sin against the Holy Spirit is to deny that this is God. It's to deny that this is the creator come to make the world new. It's essentially to deny all of God's claims. It's um, to be completely opposed and, um, and reject God's claim to be good and to redeem. It's not some technical way of speech of saying something about the Holy Spirit. The scribes have lost it altogether. But what about the family? The family thinks he's crazy. So, at the end of the passage, after addressing the scribes, Mark brings us back to the family. 
And they're trying to get to Jesus. And so the crowds come and say, your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside. And Jesus gives them their reproof now. Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do my works. You know, that's the warning for those who think he's crazy. I think C.S. Lewis is, you know, one of several who've noticed that Jesus is either who he says he was, he was a demonic, powerful, evil spirit, or he was crazy. You know, maybe there's more options, but that's essentially what Mark's giving us. And Jesus is remarking to us, if you think he's crazy, you think he's a bit overboard, then think again. The crowds have it right. The moment of redemption is at hand. This then leads us into this scene in 2 Corinthians with Paul, where I want to make some help for us, some guidance or encouragement as we slowly exit this season of pandemic and God willing, begin to meet together in community and at church. And Paul significantly begins um, in the moment of new creation. He assumes this work of Jesus is complete. And in the context of what Paul's doing, if you go back to the beginning of the letter, this is 2 Corinthians. So Paul's writing them a second letter, probably a third letter, and he's explaining to them why he hasn't come to them. So he's written them a letter and he's reproved them more than once for sins, for division, for the rich taking advantage of the poor, for sexual immorality. And they're angry. They're angry for being rebuked. And so Paul, as he's coming, decides not to go because he knows his presence. He knows the reproofs he brought brings them grief. So he tells them, I didn't come. Of course, what does this create but cynicism? Paul says he's going to come. He says he's not going to come. And Paul says, my yes is my yes, and my no is my no. I did not come because I did not want to bring you grief. And that brings us to this core passage. Now Paul wants to move this community back in to shape its actions. He wants to call them to kind of an ethical um, uh, step in their own unity. But he does it with the doctrine of new creation, with this hope, with this truth that the world... Jesus has begun to make the world new. If you go back a few verses into chapters 3 and 4, he begins to talk about Moses at the start. And he says, you know, Moses used to go up on the mountain and see the face of God, and his face would shine, and they would have to veil it when he saw the people. And then he says, that light was associated with Moses and the law, but you have the light of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit's central again here. He's the one that brings about the fruit of creation. And he says, that spirit shines in our hearts by the glory of the face of Christ. And we see him because we are like him in his image. We're being transformed into Jesus' resurrected body. You're being made a new creation, Paul says. He will say that explicitly in the next chapter. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. A newly made creation. And this is the beginning of Paul's move to kind of an ethical call for them. But he, he pauses there to explain, and this is where our, our passage picks up, to explain what's happening in these bodies of ours. He says, so what you've got at work in you is a newly created work. He says this just before our passage. For the one who said, let light shine out of the darkness, right? Genesis 1, creation. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The light that Shown first in creation in Genesis 1, God has now through Christ and the Holy Spirit made shine within us. And so he says to the Corinthians, there's two things at work in you now. 
You have an old body of flesh, an Adam body, as he calls it elsewhere. And the Adamic body, the body of Adam, is dying. It's fragile. It's sick. But it's dying just as a newly created body in Christ's resurrection is beginning to take life. And within us, by the Spirit, there's already a brand new work that has an eternal weight of glory that's full of hope and joy, Paul says. And what I want you to do, that's the core of our reading today, is stop setting your minds on the decaying body and its troubles and its distresses and its suffering. Set your minds on the glorified body that you can't yet see. It's a choice, it's a decision of what we choose to orient our minds to. And in your suffering, all you're thinking about is the disadvantages and the inconveniences of your body. And Paul says, you've got the wrong body in mind. Think of the gift that's united to Christ Jesus already and in whom you see glory when you look at yourself. This is the connection to the pandemic. I know I'm among the rest of you, we're tired of a long year that never seemed to stop. And even to now, I can think that it's not going to end as soon as I hope. But this will just continue to play out for a while. We're sick of being told to wear masks or not wear masks. People are sick of being told to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. People are sick of being alone, told where they can go. You know, it's, it's been um, a, dis- um, a disorienting sense of life for us. Our community has been taken away. Our freedoms, the pleasures, the normal things we enjoy in our bodies. And that's what Paul begins to do with these Corinthians is say, that inconvenience of your body is momentary light inconvenience in light of the eternal weight of glory. It is momentary light affliction. It's nothing. I mean, that's crazy talk. Paul even says later in in Corinthians, he says, people think I'm crazy. I am. I'm crazy for the love of this community. That This suffering in our body is only light momentary affliction. It doesn't feel like that very often. And Paul's not saying this from nowhere. This is significant. If you jump ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists the sufferings he's gone through for the sake of this community so that they'll know that he's not being a hypocrite. He says, I've been beaten with 40 lashes by the Jews five times. I've been beaten with rods three times. I've been stoned. I've been imprisoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've been robbed. I've been hungry. I've had sleepless nights. I mean, the list goes on. And he considers this his glory. For when I am weak, then I am strong, that famous passage. See, Paul doesn't mind the dying and the Um, the inconvenience that comes to the decaying body because he believes so confidently in the life that's in him and the resurrected body. And that's his call to the church. If you set your minds on the decaying body, it will result in complaining and division. Set your mind on the glorified body, on the love and the redemptive work by the Spirit already at work in you. Right there at that moment is when Paul makes his burdened appeal He says, Corinthians, our hearts are wide open for you. He's coming to a community that doesn't want to see him. They're angry at him. Our hearts are wide open to you. And there's no restriction in us. The restrictions in your affections open your hearts. Widen your hearts. Just a few verses later, he'll come back and say, open your hearts, make room in your hearts for us. That's his appeal. He wants that truth 
of the fact that we have newly made bodies that will last forever, that are glorified, already bearing fruit in joy and hope within us. And if we set our minds there, can we not embrace in love? I am like you. I know people are concerned as we come out. We are not going to agree about how to gather and how to mask and how to distance. Our bodies will suffer light momentary affliction. We'll be cast out. We'll be standouts. Some of us will be masked and some won't. And there'll have to be an opening of our hearts to be patient with one another, to suffer, to suffer with, to be sympathetic towards, to watch and listen and adapt, to give of ourselves so that that community can come back together. It's a risk when we're fatigued and our bodies have felt like we've been deprived to let that be anger, to let it be divisive. And I ask Paul's question to us as we come out of this season and seek to gather again, will you open your hearts to one another? Widen your hearts. Let's open our hearts and make room for one another so that as we gather the afflictions that we have suffered don't overcome us and divide us, but that we open our space and our hearts for the work of that Spirit who unites us with one another and unites us to Christ in his resurrected power. Amen.